you're having tea with Alice, this week's episode is with Kirsty Wiebeck. We talk about everything from being an expat, she lived in Taiwan for six years, which is fascinating, to the sense of belonging that we either have or don't have in the world. And uh, I have some news for you if you are a TCAST listener, if you like my stand-up as well. I have a one-hour special that's out now on iview abc iview it'll be screening on the main channel on the 21st of january so please tune in for that but it's now also available online so if you're in australia or if you're overseas but can do that vpn tunneling thing (laughs) it's available on itunes uh, sorry on iview to watch uh, in its fullest extent i think it's a relatively decent representation of the show i filmed it on the night that i got back from the uk and uh I think next time I will film two and do that thing where you edit them together. But this is just a straight-up one-hour show, one-hour iteration of my show, The Resistance. So if you saw that show and liked it or didn't get a chance to see that show and are either in Australia or can pretend to be in Australia for the purposes of the internet, do watch it. I would really like lots of people to see it. Uh, What else? I'm still riding the high of the Tomorrow Makers Award. Oh, my tickets for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival are now available online. And also for the Adelaide Fringe Festival, those two sets of tickets are available online now. If you go to my website and look at the gigs page, there should be links there. If you're in Adelaide or Melbourne and want to see the new show, it's called Empire. And I will have it written by then. Thank you, everybody, who's been emailing in. AliceRFraser at gmail.com is the place to go. Everyone who subscribes on Patreon, patreon.com slash AliceFraser, I really appreciate what you do. It's It makes it possible for me to do this podcast. I can pay for the hosting fees and I can pay for tea for my guests. And that is a fantastic thing. I should also be able to start doing some more things soon. Uh, so if I get a few more Patreon subscribers... I will start producing some online video content if you want that. And if you don't want that, let me know at Alliterative on Twitter, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Thank you, everyone who's emailed in. Again, it's a really lovely thing. I got a really wonderful email the other day about someone who saw Savage (laughs) nearly a year and a half ago at Edinburgh and changed her life, uh, changed the direction of her career because of that show. That is a heavy email to get. Uh, She's very happy now, so that's good. (laughs) I'm glad that didn't turn out badly, uh, but it's made me sort of feel kind of stunned at the impact that you can have on people's lives with the comedy because you feel like, well, it's really meaningful to you to produce this show and you're saying things that are really important to you and you're trying to say them in a way that people can hear and people can be moved by and laugh at and think and and then it actually works. It's... it's, I don't know how, what what an analogy would be. It's like uh, building a, a a gun or something, building a machine, and suddenly finding out that it actually does what you want it to do. Uh, so that's that's delightful. I should just let you guys get on with listening to the conversation I had with Kirsty. Do look her up online, Kirsty Wiebeck. She's based out of Melbourne, but travels everywhere and does lots of gigs. She's a great MC and a great performer, and a all-round ra- all good person. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. You're having tea with Alice. Kirsty Wiebeck, who is a comedian and an organiser of things, an excellent human being. How are you? 
I'm well, thank you. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a herbal tea. Uh, I do believe you described it to me as uh, herbal and floral. Yes. Yes. Sort of a chamomile, chamomile. with some flowers. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. It's very nice. A uh, uh, gift of my friend Kate, actually. So. Well, thank you, Kate. It's delicious. And I'm drinking a sort of a weird cinnamon and turmeric concoction because I don't feel like caffeine and the chamomile puts me to sleep. I need to expand my range of herbal teas. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that actually when I took my first sip of the chamomile. You're like, I can oh, just imagine by the end of this <laughs> podcast, you're going to be so chilled out, Matt. <laughs> yeah, whoa. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. There's plenty of people who do podcasts high. <laughs> this is a different version of that. That's true. What have you been up to recently? What have you been thinking about? Uh, well, I've been thinking a lot about my comedy festival show for next year. Yeah. Which I'm sure is the same for you and every other comedian yeah, in the world. Yeah, it's that thing where you've got a deadline and no idea what you're going to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I've got a premise. Um, that's it. Just a premise for my show. And it, uh, my show's called Good One, mm-hmm. we, uh, which you'll appreciate is very generic. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the <laughs> give us a title and a poster image and it's yeah. very general. Yeah, yeah, and, the, and then the blurb is like, oh, enjoy another hour of hilarity, <laughs> like <laughs> the standard thing. Um, but yeah, so it's called Good One and it's, it, it's supposed to be about trying to be a good person. Yeah, which is harder than you would think. Yeah. My show, The Resistance, has a lot um, with that. Actually, guys, I have a date for that. It's coming out on the ABC on the 21st of January. So put it in your calendar. And if you know someone with one of those um, ratings boxes, tell them to tune in. Um, but yeah, it is, it's a super difficult thing to be a good person. It's very easy yeah. to pretend to be a good person. It is. It's very yeah. easy to get a lot of the... A lot of the um, benefits of being a good person without doing a lot of the being a good person. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think a lot about how social media has changed that as well. I think about it in relation to, you know, you know, you see a lot of those posts that people do about like how they were a bit of a hero during the day Mm. in some way. And it was the kind of act that I like to think maybe 10 or 15 years ago somebody would just do unnoticed and would be satisfied just knowing that they'd w- whatever whatever it is, taken a homeless person to the hospital or, yeah. or whatever. And then, and then and you, you sort of see them going... you might tell your partner or a friend or whatever. Yeah. But, but, ne- but now it's like a newscast across Facebook and it goes viral and it's... I mean, there's not really any such thing as an altruistic act, is there? But Facebook has made altruism completely redundant. Like, it's almost impossible to even have have a a mildly altruistic sort of experience. Yeah. Because people just publish it immediately and it's like, well, did you do that because it was the right thing to do in the moment or because it was going to be something great to broadcast and and to go viral later on, you know? Yeah, but I mean, I wonder if that's maybe a good thing for the world. I don't know, maybe it's maybe there's somebody who wouldn't have helped a homeless person who thought, that'll do really well on my Instagram. Well, see, this is the thing about <laughs> it as well. That's the thing, though, is that the end result is still the same. Mm. So does the intention really matter at all? I mean, that person was still helped, weren't they? 
Yeah, I think. I mean, I guess that's my. This is my Buddhist upbringing showing. I do think volition is important. Yeah. Like if you if you're throwing a stone down on someone's head hoping to kill them and it crushes the snake that was about to kill them instead, mm-hmm. you've ob- objectively saved someone's life. But subjectively, <laughs> like. <laughs> I love that example. <laughs> I don't think you can be congratulated. Sure. Yeah, like attempted murder downgraded to... <laughs> now you're a hero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, anyone would have done the same in that situation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But you're right. It is It is difficult to to make good decisions all the time. And I think it's okay not to as well, but... It, like not not to make good decisions all the time. That is, it's because because you, you need to learn from those, and you need to be checking yourself all the time and sort of thinking about how you could do things better in the future. And it's like there's you know none of us are perfect. Yeah, I want to do a keynote speech or some sort of educational thing in schools about how like about failure. Mm-hmm. Not that kind of um, sort of pat entrepreneurial fail fast thing, but like that it's really important to fail and when you fail to notice that you've failed, not just, oh, it's somebody else's fault, oh, it couldn't have been helped, oh, I did all of the things that I could have done, like trying to make it okay, but going, like just know that you failed, why you failed, how you failed. That's so much, and and be interested in other people's failures. Sure. Not just to feed you like, oh, I'm better than them, but like there's that, I've talked about it before on the podcast, the... um. Uh, survivorship bias where you look at people who've succeeded there was a guy who was in the department of war maths in the war in world war one I, I think it was and they were looking at the planes coming back and seeing where the bullet holes were and then reinforcing where the bullet holes were but they weren't dropping the statistics of planes that were getting shot down and he was like no 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 you want to look at the where the planes aren't coming back with bullet holes where the ones with bullet holes don't have bullet holes those are the ones that aren't coming back. Right. So they're getting shot where you don't see it. They've, you don't get to see those bullet holes because they're the ones that have failed. Yeah, sure. So looking in that area, the blank spaces, the people who've failed, it's more important to look at them and reinforce in those places. Yeah. I found that very inspiring. That is really inspiring. I read an article on on the internet, obviously, um, the other day about – it's loosely related to this. It was about um, accepting where you are right now in your life mm. and not, not – well, not feeling like a failure because you're X years old and you don't have a house or you don't have a partner or you don't have children – or whatever, and and sort of accepting the decisions you've made along the way, or the decisions that you haven't made along the way that have gotten you just to that point. Yeah, and just being cool with it. Yeah, and it was really, um, yeah, it was it was really interesting because there's a lot of there's always so much pressure on everyone to succeed, which is exactly the reason why we don't acknowledge our failures properly, mm. unless it's in that real sort of self-deprecating comedy kind of hashtag I hate adulting yeah. kind of way, which is so disingenuous. It's so disingenuous. Oh, my God, I just paid taxes. <laughs> like yeah, can yes. adult. 
And it's like you've yeah. been doing it for years, buddy. Like You're we a all grown know. up. <laughs> you don't get congratulated for being on par. Y- yeah, like yeah, like yeah, that's exactly right. Being I mean, the average person. Chris Rock used to do a joke about that of like, oh, I'm here for my children, or you know, guys who were in the black community in America who'd be like, I, you know, I look after my kids, and it's like, yeah, that's what you're meant to do. Yeah. You don't get congratulations on <laughs> being a father, like that's <laughs> yeah. part of the job, mate. Like. <laughs> That just reminds me immediately of uh, of the the whole concept of l- letting the wife go out for the day while uh, the husband babysits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not babysitting. You're parenting. <laughs> You're looking after your children that you produced. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> so you lived in Taiwan for six years. I did. Why? Yeah. And what what did you do there? And what did you get out of it? Yeah, great. Um. Oh, I'm so, I'm I'm so glad that you've brought this up because recently recently people have been asking me a lot about it and I'm sort of at the point where I've been back for almost as long as I was there. Yeah. And I haven't talked about it much for a while and recently it's really come back up into my life and I love it. Um I went about 2 months after I turned 22. I'd never lived out of home. In Australia. I did uni while living with my parents in Canberra. Uh-huh. And the reason that I did, I, that I stayed at home was because I knew I wanted to live abroad afterwards. And I had some options to go and sort of work in PR in either Canada or Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And then through just a series of life's twisted paths, I ended up not saving as much money as I would have liked to have. And my older sister saw an ad at her university for teaching English in Taiwan. And I'd actually always wanted to learn Mandarin. So I was like, yeah, that's a sign. <laughs> so I applied and got the job. And it all happened really, really quickly. And, and then, you know, about two months later, I was on a plane. And I was going for a year to study Mandarin and teach English. And I had so much fun that I came back six years later. Wow. It was just great. And what did I get out of it? Um, wow. Uh, so, so many things. Probably... Mandarin for one. Yeah, Mandarin for one. Yeah. Um, probably a, a... Well, a much deeper understanding of different cultures. Mm. And I remember the penny really dropping for me while I was over there because at uni I did some linguistics units and one of them was language, culture and society. And I found it so fascinating. It was just for a semester. And it was all about um, how our language and values are deeply linked to um, how we can form as humans and how it, it differs very different. Uh, sorry, <laughs> it differs very differently. Great. <laughs> it differs dramatically um, between different uh between different countries or different language groups or whatever. And I remember uh, while I was in Taiwan, the penny really dropping and just realising how, how differently we perceive the world to people from different cultures. And I guess letting go of this sense of how we do things is the correct way. Could, and you, could you pin it to a moment or a... I don't know if I can pin the realisation to a moment um, necessarily, but uh, I can can definitely think of 
um, an example. I think... Okay, probably the best example is how economical the Mandarin language is. Mm-hmm. And it's very transactional. Mm-hmm. And to us, when we arrive, when we start learning the language, it's rude. They, in inverted commas, <laughs> are rude. Yeah. And you're not going to verbalise that. But that's what you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and you know that it's not something that you, <laughs> you would ever say out loud. But that is stamped out of your psyche so quickly. Yeah. When you're just like, it's a different life and a different lifestyle and it's very, very busy and thing, things are just transactional and they get the, in, in general people get things done really quickly. And you realise how fluffy we are with our language and non-committal yeah. and worried about upsetting people and it doesn't exist, which takes this layer out of social interactions that in some ways makes it easier to actually form relationships with people there because it's no nonsense. Yeah. And you just know exactly what people want straight up. That's really interesting because, I mean, Asian cultures in broad brushstrokes have a reputation for being quite diplomatic. Mm. Yeah, and and in Taiwan they can be. Um, th- th- there There is a level of diplomacy. There's something in Taiwanese culture uh, called guanxi, Mm-hmm. And it's it's a different kind um, of friendship. It's t- to a Westerner, I think our understanding would be that it's a transactional kind of relationship, mm. and it is a careful dance around people where you, you don't have a genuine, proper friendship with them, but you have a respect between each other and some sort of some sort of relationship, but. A lot of it relies on material goods mm-hmm. and you wouldn't necessarily ever have a good time with each other yeah. or anything but you would maintain this relationship where you you literally are giving each other material things and one-upping each other with them. <laughs> and it's really – it's interesting because everyone – Is it a power play? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, and I mean it extends into things even like – uh, weddings, like when you go to a wedding, you put money into a red envelope depending on what you perceive your relationship to be with the bride and groom. So if I'm just a colleague from Australia teaching at the school with the bride, it's acceptable for me to put in, say, the equivalent of $50. Mm-hmm. But if you've ever been to the beach with them on the weekend, <laughs> <laughs> you've got to jack that up to 75 <laughs> Okay. And when you arrive, they've got family members sitting at the front of the of the function room with uh, w- like with clipboards opening the envelopes and writing how much money you had in your envelope while you stand there. Wow. And the purpose of that is that eventually, if and when you get married, the expectation is that the bride and groom will one-up what you gave them at their wedding. Wow. <laughs> That's really interesting. It is really interesting. And at 22 years of, of age when, you know, you've lived in Canberra your whole life and you haven't had a great deal of exposure to a, a culture in, in its entirety across, you know, such a long span of time as well, you start out just going, what is this? Like... And uh, there's a lot of like, this is nuts, this is crazy, that's dumb, 
that's weird. We'd never do it like that. But it's interesting as time goes on, just the acceptance and this this understanding that you're not going to understand everything and that is okay. And it's like your your judgment just dissolves, but really, um, yeah, really fluidly. Like you don't you don't make a conscious effort of it. It's just like as you as you amble along, you're just like, oh, cool. That's how things are done. Did you find it um, pleasing or freeing to be obviously an outsider? Because I never I I felt that way when I first went overseas. Because I never felt that I fitted in where I was meant to fit in. So knowing that I wasn't meant to fit in was quite nice. <laughs> well, to begin with, I don't, I don't think it felt qu- I don't think it felt nice. I think being so young at the time, it was sort of the intention was flattering and I enjoyed the anonymity because I grew I grew up in Canberra and my family are just always involved in everything. And there's there's this joke in Canberra that everyone knows at least one Weebeck. Mm-hmm. And so... <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, like, my sister rang me the other day and told me she met somebody who knows of, of me just through, through me being a comedian who <laughs> approached her and asked her if she was a Weebeck. <laughs> so, like, being a Weebeck is a thing in Canberra. Oh, great. And so I always felt like... Um, Mum inadvertently had spies all over town, so <laughs> it was more. It was more the anonymity. Uh, I always thought it must be such a dud job to be like an international spy and be dropped in Canberra. Like yeah, Canberra is just the city of bored spies. <laughs> yes, so many bored spies. <laughs> it would be to be the worst. Just like, what's there to do? Like, roll down the hill at Parliament House. Yes, yeah, let's roll down the hill at Parliament House again and then go and get a latte in Manica. <laughs> again, Steve. Well, that's all we've got. <laughs> you know, Questacon, they blow those balls up in the air and they look like they're floating. <laughs> that was always my big thing. Questacon, I love the. <laughs> Questacon is rad. It's pretty good. You never, you never get bored of Questacon. No, you don't. You don't. You don't trust anybody that says they do. <laughs> One major rule. Um,. Yeah, yeah, so it was it was yeah, the it's like what part of yeah. it don't you like fun or learning? Which bit do you hate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's too educational. I came out of there feeling enriched. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that feeling. It it became a uh being a blatant outsider became very tiresome for me in my last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I actually would have left at the 5 year mark, I think. But my girlfriend at the time, she wanted to stay for an extra year. So, yeah, which was fine. I was like, yeah, okay, I could do. Um, but that last year was a struggle for me. And I think a lot of it was to do with the fact my Mandarin was quite good at that stage, which made it even more obvious to me that I was never going to fit in there. And I could not just have a transactional conversation with somebody and get a new gas bottle put in. Yeah. It'd have to be like, which part of America are you from? And, <laughs> and um, whoa, you speak Mandarin, that's crazy. How can you speak Mandarin? And it was totally fair enough. Yeah. But it was just like, oh, I've worked so hard to get my language skills up to a conversational standard and everything is still so hard. Yeah, there's a syndrome uh, among guys in Japan who've gone over, fascinated with the Japanese culture and tried to integrate uh, guys from America or the UK 
and it's called Gaijin Smash because mm. after about 10 years, they realise that they will never be accepted in Japanese culture, no matter how good their Japanese is, not a, no matter how much they respect the cultures, no matter how much they try to get all the tones and subtleties right, yep. they will always be seen as outside. And by this time, they're usually married and they're kind of tied in and they get this attitude of, well, if you see me, and obviously not all, hashtag not all gaijin, but <laughs> um, some of them get this attitude of, well, fuck you, if you're going to see me as like this uncouth monster, I am going to take advantage of that and I'm just going to walk in and do things that aren't proper because I've been trying so hard to do things your way and you'll never accept me. Oh, how interesting. I've never heard of that. So maybe if you'd stayed another four years, you might have ticked <laughs> over into... Just started behaving badly. ...the Taiwanese version of that. <laughs> Just like r- riding my motorcycle through the temples and stuff. Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> spraying paint everywhere. That's interesting. I had a, I had a lot of theories about the long-term expats in Taiwan while I was there. Oh, yeah? What were your theories? Um, and well, it actually fits in uh, very well with, with what you're saying. about How do I say that word? Gaijin? Gaijin. Yeah, that's yeah. the whiteies of Japan. Is it? Yeah, that's their word for, you know, westerners. Not it's not a polite word. That's what I was about to say. I was yeah. going to say, is that is that <laughs> kind or unkind? Yeah, it's not it's not a killing word, but it's an offence word. Okay. Yeah, because I was talking um, to my friend last night who's from Singapore about this uh, because in in Taiwan they the, the Mandarin word for foreigner is waigoren, which is was something I love about the um, the language is it's so it's so literal in many ways so. Like, why is outside and war is country and ren is people. So, it's like outside country people. Yeah. <laughs> so great. That's good. But then um, they uh, would also use lao wai, which basically means like old, old outsider. And it's in reference to how we age quicker. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which I don't find offensive, but the, the, the offense. Is, exactly, yeah. in the offense doesn't translate. Mm. It's like if you're with a Taiwanese person and uh, another person on the street refers to you as a Laowai, then the, your friend will be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> like, it's terrible. Um, yeah, so the, okay, so Gaijin. Uh, yeah, okay, so my theory is, yeah, really, really sort of similar stuff, but um, oh, a lot of people almost became reclusive. And surrounded themselves with other expats, but had just really very odd social skills, and and were also, um, you know, engaging in risky behaviours and and that kind of jazz. And but but were much older than most people would be here when they're doing similar sorts of things. That's interesting. I mean, that sort of. Uh, a parallel that I would draw is I was in Perth for the Fringe l- this l- last year in January and there was a bunch of bad things that went down. There was a lot of um, thefts and violence around the Fringe at that time. Mm-hmm. There were some security problems and uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff that was going on was drunk Aboriginal people who were behaving badly. And then you would walk down the street in the daytime and you would see how people who were Anglos mm-hmm. would walk around and ignore 
Aboriginal people in the street. Just let them you know, not make eye contact, not not connect with them in any way. Mm. And my sense was, well, of course, then you're going to tip over a bin. Of course, you're not going to feel social responsibility towards people who yeah aren't that you you don't feel like you are part of this society yeah no connection so why would you care what happens to it why would you feel yeah. like you needed to look after them or not not you know you know what i mean i i feel like maybe there's some element of that of, of there's no responsibility what i do here isn't real i'm not connected to this society so i for expats I can just do whatever the fuck I want. And obviously in Perth it was a much more kind of pernicious and deep-seated problem, but I think the psychology would be similar. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. It's like, um, yeah, it's just a Westerners overseas behaving badly thing, behaving in a way that you would never. And, I mean, I did it when I first arrived in Taiwan. I did some things that looking back on I'm like, whoa, I I would never have done that in Australia. And But I had a complete disconnection from where I was and almost a, a disconnection from myself. Yeah. And then... No sense that you're being held responsible... To exactly. ...to yourself or to anyone else because there's no one... Exactly. That's exactly like, oh, right. you're a wee back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So that makes perfect sense. There's this great initiative in the West Bank where grannies go and stand at checkpoints. And, you know, for because the Israeli soldiers, they're all 18 and they've got guns. You yeah. Know, it's a terrible thing to do to an 18-year-old, give them a gun and power over other human beings yeah. and teach them that the other human beings are lesser than them. Absolutely. You know, like, I, it's a t- they do bad things. Sure. And, they're again, trained to, they yeah. are responsible for those bad things. But also you can understand why they would behave in that way. And so these grannies just go and, and stand at the checkpoints and be like... That is so cute. And it's, an, you know, it's a massive thing for human rights because you're not going to behave badly if you're, in you know, someone, you know, in front of your granny or someone else's granny who's like, I know your mum, you know, like. Is it? <laughs> is this, is this like a coordinated thing? Yeah. It, so there's like an organisation that's coordinated these like. Yeah, yeah. Like the checkpoint, the checkpoint grannies. Yeah, and obviously there's not enough of them to stop the immense human rights abuses that are being perpetrated. Sure. But. That's an amazing the, the 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 gaze of somebody who you feel is connected to you, or you feel that whatever that sense is that somebody else deserves the respect of you behaving well around them. And I mean, particularly in that culture, the people of the Holocaust survivor age are respected, absolutely, like incredibly respected. So. They have that moral authority, and they don't have to do anything. They just have to be there. That is so cute and important as well. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like amazing. <laughs> the best kind, of the best combination, cute and important. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, so great. I'm gonna look that up when I go home later. That's yeah. that's really special. Yeah, it made me really happy when I found out about it. Um, so yeah, so you you saw this thing happening and you didn't really want to be part of that sense of disconnection. No. No, and I, I wanted I wanted to be back somewhere where I belonged. Yeah. Yeah, because even – I mean, I felt v- very much like I belonged in the expat community, mm. but I didn't I didn't want to be in an expat community. I just wanted to be in the community, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and it wasn't a deeply negative experience or I wasn't really sad or depressed or anything. I was still having a really great time but I wanted to be able to be involved properly and you can't be. You don't understand how things work even after six years. You don't know how to source certain things. Like you don't know how to get involved in a community group. A lot of the time you're not allowed to because of your visa conditions. Um yeah, you, d- you don't know how to find new things that might interest you or you, you're sort of reliant on the information that trickles down through the sort of expat websites and things like that. And I just wanted to be able to be in a place where I could just absorb all the information around me and make proper decisions based on everything available, not just the tiny little trickle of information that was available to me. Yeah, that makes you very much reliant on other people. Yeah, and that's not a great feeling. No, it's really disempowering. I, I mean, you can't even, you can't even Google things because the English language resources are so limited, and you, no matter how long you study for, your command of the language isn't going to be good enough to be able to type in the certain nuances for different hobbies or whatever around town. So it was really hard. It was like it was, yeah, restrictive and yeah. If we, it was this weird combination of feeling fiercely independent because you were cruising around in a country where... Um, you learned you the language, you made everything yourself. Yeah, yeah. But then on the, on the other hand, you knew that you weren't as independent as you, you thought you were because you were really limited in what you had at your fingertips. So, yeah, it was a, 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 strange, a strange feeling. And also an odd feeling, that, uh, something that was difficult is that we were all over there teaching English, People in general speak great English in Taiwan. But again, uh, as a sweeping uh, generalisation, it's a shy culture. And it's a a culture uh, built around success as well. So um, speaking English, you'd have to be a very special, overly confident, flamboyant kind of character over there to actually put yourself forward as an English speaker. So people would be more likely to let you amble along humiliating yourself in Mandarin. <laughs> and then you'd go for like 10 minutes trying to explain something and you'd be, and you'd be like, oh, whoa, yeah, oh, b- pointing at this thing, a uh, computer. <laughs> like, and then eventually, after ages, they'd be like, oh, you want to go to blah, 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 in this American accent because they'd learn English forever. And you'd be like, oh, my gosh. And you'd be like, why didn't you help me earlier? Oh, my English is terrible. It's embarrassing. And you're like, (laughs) oh, what? What? Like, I'm pretty sure I just called your mum a donkey and I was trying (laughs) to find out where the train station is. Like, (laughs) Sounds, sounds, yeah, stressful. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, for sure. But you feel like you came back. You didn't go back to Canberra. You came back here? Yeah, so I travelled around Australia for a bit less than a year in a camper van. Mm-hmm. Picking fruit uh, because my girlfriend at that time is from England. So you just went on the road? Yeah, to get her second year working holiday visa. S- so that's two girlfriends in a row or the same girlfriend? Same girlfriend, yeah. Oh. She moved back with me. And we broke up after the fruit picking thing. But we got a second year uh, One working apple too holiday many. visa. One apple too many. I think it was actually... um. Pears in Shepparton. Okay. <laughs> it's not tipped us over the edge. But um, we did it all right. Not 
it, fruit picking is grueling and, and no one does it correctly. They all buy off farmers. Mm. So they'll go and do fruit picking for like three weeks and then the farmer will tick them off. And like maybe they will have worked for free for the few weeks or, or like whatever. There's usually a bit of money exchanges hands. Yeah. But we like we did it all by the book and um, it was great. She got her she actually got her citizenship about three weeks ago or something. Oh, that's good. And yeah. you're still mates. Yeah. Yeah, so it all paid off. That's a stereotype of the lesbian community that everyone's friends with their exes. <laughs> is, is that true or not? Uh, in my experience, no. And we weren't even friends for we only became friends maybe like eighteen months ago. We we weren't friends for years after we broke up. And I I don't really have any exes that I'm friends with. Um, it is a stereotype though. And uh, yeah, yeah. And there's some comedians around town that do really good bits on it. It's really funny. But it's like it, it's such a small community that I think we like to try to maintain some sort of relationship because you're going to um, be you bumping into each other. Well, and yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And they'll know your next girlfriend and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, in my experience, uh, yeah, I haven't really remained friends with many of mine. That's fair enough. You were saying before we picked the microphones up that you used to have a difficult opinion about gay marriage. Yeah, yeah, I did. you don't believe it anymore or it's something that you... Yeah, well, I used to be really staunchly opposed to it. Oh, interesting. Why? Yeah, well, I I think I held... I think I held the view that r- like we don't have to take on the traditions of heterosexual people, mm. which is a view that you do hear pop up in in the media a little bit. Yeah, why but would I want those restrictions and the bourgeois sort of oppression? Sure. And w- why do I need to own my partner? Because, yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to strip it right back and, and take it back to historical times, like it was, you know, really, really an ownership thing. Yeah. And I, th- I think... I think that's where the thought the thought came from, but it's well, while I'm thinking about it now out loud, it's sort of similar to I I used to um, really staunchly deny being a feminist. Ah, uh, interesting again. Yeah, and and it's funny because we were just talking about my ex girlfriend who I went fruit picking with, and it used to really wind her up, and. I I was just like, well, I'm not one. Is but it because you didn't want to be associated with the extremists of yes. that movement? Yes. Mm. And I guess I'd grown up in in um, a sort of climate where everyone around me had these views that there was a real sort of hairy-legged feminist. Like, that sentence... Yeah. Like, it's it's so funny but that it's said with such vitriol as I sit here with my hairy legs. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not shaming these guys for, for anybody. It's, like it's not going to happen. Another five minutes out of my day. Um, but, yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd grown up in, in that kind of environment where anything I ever heard about feminism was, like, you know, it was, it was akin to terrorism, really. It yeah. was, like, honestly, the way it was spoken about was just, like, He's another hairy-legged feminist, like blah blah blah, and just by a, a lot of people around at uh, in those sort of formative years, and so I I don't I didn't understand it really, mm. and I would say that it was the same for gay marriage. Like I'm uh, historically 
um, yeah, historically I've never been good in relationships. So I think I had a really insular view of it where I didn't, I didn't look at the flip side of it and what it means to other people. And then when I started to really think about it, it was like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't mean ownership to everybody anymore. And even even if it does and it's in a consensual way and two people want to link themselves together in that kind of way for the rest of their lives, then they should be allowed to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of in arguments that I've had with people who are against gay marriage for the reasons of historical, you know, historically it's always been a man and a woman. Yeah. I mean historically you go back to some really messy and thing nasty things that we wouldn't necessarily agree with in in the context of marriage so my most effective argument so far has been that's not what it means anymore exactly now what it means like you can you can be angry with the last 50 years of people who have changed the meaning of marriage from this kind of ownership and a deal between two families to what it is now, which is two people who love each other wanting to make a public commitment to each other. Exactly. Which is basically all it is now. It's not even sure. till death do us part. 50% no. of the time it's not. So yeah. let's <laughs> yeah. acknowledge the reality of the situation. And if it is just that, then do you object to p- two people who love each other wanting to make a commitment to each other? Yeah. And then it's very hard for them to find ground to stand on outside of that yeah yeah and you just hit the nail on the head like it doesn't the tradition surrounding it has completely changed for sure and it also makes administrative sense like you've got to go back to the like the um regency period where people started having the idea that you could marry for love in the upper classes and the middle classes which Mm -hmm. were just emerging then that was the first time you really had that idea that you would marry for love rather than pragmatism yeah or for you know financial gain or whatever it was yeah so blame them yeah, yeah. blame, those blame them for the gays thinking that it's fine to get married because that's what it means now it just means you love each other yeah you love each other and you want to you want to show that commitment yeah in front of in front of the people that mean mean the most to you and it does uh it, it does make administrative sense as well that's the thing is that same-sex couples are penalised in a lot of states. Like, you look at these... They pop up in the media all the time, like a couple that's been together for 60 years and like, and they're not entitled to each other's superannuation and, and, and things when the other one dies. And it's like, what? Yeah. Like, that's not a thing. You've got to be married to be entitled to that. But we're not allowed to be married. Like, even, you know, if you want to, if you want to be clinical about it, then, you know, there's that facet of it as well that it's just... Well, I had a friend, uh, I have a friend who has recently transitioned mm-hmm. and their marriage got annulled. Great. Because they changed their birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And you can say what you want about, you know, what being trans is, whether it's, you know, whether you should change someone's birth certificate or whether, you know, like all of that stuff is highly theoretical and there's not enough science behind it anyway. You don't know if somebody, if gender, how much gender is innate from birth and how much of it you get when you hit puberty or, you know, all of that stuff is still super in the air. But the fact is this person had what was a legally valid marriage and they changed a different document Right. And their marriage no longer exists, despite the fact that they have been married for years and years and have a child and all oh of this stuff. Oh, gosh, that's you know heartbreaking. I mean? that's, it, that, that seems to me to be insane. 
Like yeah. that's, that's a bureaucratic insanity there. Yeah, it's almost like bureaucratic cruelty, isn't it? It's just like, okay, cool, well, we'll, we'll let you do the birth certificate thing, but, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Like, wh- what do you want to be? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you want to be married or do you want to be a girl? Like Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and I found that really, yeah, really troubling. Mm. For a number of reasons, but, yeah, particularly that. that. It would have been such a joyous moment as well, having the birth certificate changed and, you know, feeling feeling more recognised. Yeah, feeling validated in your <laughs> self-identity that yeah. the government can... Like, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Yeah, it's the great. Government, not all governments in the world do that. They go, okay, we're going to accept this and we're going to change these documents. Yeah, but there's always got to be something, doesn't doesn't there? And then just that, <laughs> like just yeah. that moment. Oh, you, by the way, your marriage is annulled. It doesn't function oh, anymore. That's hard. Very bad. Yeah. Yeah, well, you'll be pleased to know that now I think everyone should just be able to get married. Regardless of whether or not I think it's, it's out there for me. I... I have no desire to be married ever, but if if I met somebody who it meant a lot to, mm. then because it doesn't mean a lot to me, I would happily do it. Yeah, to make them happy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, because I'm not opposed to it. It's just that it's not necessarily something that's on on my um on my radar. But my little sister is is in a same sex relationship, and she has um d- twin daughters with her partner who are six tomorrow incidentally and um how cute's that That's <laughs> very cute. so That's very cute. Th- like they're allowed to have a family and raise this family and b- like be this ha- happy family unit yeah surely but you don't want them living in sin <laughs> exactly yeah it's it's revolting they've had these children out of wedlock <laughs> you forced them to <laughs> So I want them to be able to get married. Yeah. It's just the broader picture thing though, isn't it? It's just the systemic. It's interesting the workarounds people find though. Like historically there was a there was a a tradition, not even a tradition. It was it was a, a done thing for older gay men to adopt their younger partners so that they would have some of the protections of law that are family protections. Wow. So they would legally adopt their younger partner so that, for example, if they were sick and and they didn't want their, the hospital decisions to be made by their immediate b- blood family, they could have their partner in and all of that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> People are crafty, aren't they? <laughs> Super crafty. That, like, that is, that's a, a particular form of genius. So adopt the younger partner. Yeah, so that then they could make decisions for you if you became, you know, non compostmentous or you know, whatever it happened to be. How do you dodge the incest laws? I think <laughs> I, I think it was sort of in some ways easier at the time. I don't think many yeah. people would have suspected it sure. as much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be so much that at, at that period it wouldn't have been so much the incest laws as the buggery laws. Yeah, sure. Which would have got you um, anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think there was a great a great sense of concern about r- incest back in the back in those periods. Yeah, you'd probably be <laughs> more in more trouble for being gay than <laughs> incest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, we frown upon that, but this gay thing, whoa. <laughs> and I could I could be wrong about this, but I read it at one point and believed it. So let's pretend I'm right. <laughs> I, st- I think it is still not illegal 
in Australia to marry your aunt or uncle. True. Wow. Well, look that one up. That's just opened up some doors for me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, yeah, that's an interesting loophole as far as things go. Yeah, wow. I think it might be more just that the law hasn't considered it rather than anything. Maybe it's like there's not really an epidemic of it. Yeah. So (laughs) They don't have to worry. Yeah, there's there's not this subgroup of people out there that have these fetishes for their um like their mother's sister or whatever <laughs> it's just not a thing <laughs> well i maybe in the olden days it was something that was done more i mean you'd marry cousins back in the day to keep, mm. keep things in the family yeah yeah is the there a law you might know this is, is what's the law about cousins now i feel like you're allowed to marry your second cousin or something you are um, you're allowed to marry your second cousin, I think, everywhere. In some places you can marry your first cousin and others you can't. Yeah. So it just depends on which state you're in uh, in America. And I think – I don't know what it is in Australia. Um, you may be able to. I could be wrong there. Yeah, so you just got to do your homework, really. Yeah, you, <laughs> have, to, yeah, <laughs> you have to geolocate the, <laughs> the thing. But it's – I mean, I would think that the, the Westermark effect would be more prevalent with cousins than with – aunts or uncles the western market mm. is if you grow up as a sibling or close in age to someone you're you're not sexually attracted to them right except in you know if you're wired weirdly for the most part if you if you're very young children growing up together you don't you don't feel sexually attracted to one another is that that's what the western market effect means yeah that's that you just don't feel that yeah it's just yeah. A, it's a thing you know it's obviously a biological protection against you know incest that's great isn't it like we're such complex little creatures yeah <laughs> like the inbuilt security system against incest yeah and it, you know it, you see it in 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 culture nowadays if someone you're like oh are you into her and they're like, no no she's like my sister yeah what yeah that means is inherently it means i don't find her sexually attractive i couldn't you know that's a it's a deeply visceral kind of repulsion that we have yeah interesting very useful and of course, yeah. you know, if there are various people who whose brain wirings are wrong, and they dodge that. Yeah, and we see them on the uh, on the news fr- on the news and on the front cover of That's Life magazine, telling their story for fifty dollars and oh. a jaffle maker. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the jaffle maker sealed the deal, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as well as the sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, where can people find you online? Um, I'm all over the interwebs. You can hunt me down on Facebook. I'm most prolific on Facebook. I get complaints from the general public about how prolific I am on but Facebook. I'm pretty much Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, people have control over their own feeds. I know. That's exactly what I tell people all the time. You pop up in my news feed all the time. We'll change that. Yeah. You've got the controls at your fingertips. I'll come to your house and do it for you <laughs> if yeah. it means you'll never complain to me again. <laughs> just, just set up a set up a um, a PDF that shows them how to do it. Yeah, yeah. This is how to unfollow me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm on I'm on Facebook. Um, just uh, yeah, you can look up Kirsty Webeck. It's W E B E C K. I'm on Twitter, same name. Instagram, same name. Ironically, uh, website, same name. <laughs> All of that. All of that, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's the best way to find me. And you do lots of stand-up all over the place. I do, yes. All over the country. 
Um, I run a bunch of different gigs in Melbourne. I run Queers of Comedy, usually quarterly. I run Kirsty Webex Comedy Crushes, which is at the moment also quarterly. And then I'm just zooming around everywhere, just trying to trying to make jokes in public. <laughs> for money. For money. <laughs> to pay my exorbitant rent. Well, thank you so much for coming to my house. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Lovely rifles all, lovely rifles all day. 